This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 22 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. Genomic studies have improved our understanding of human genetic variation, and this knowledge in turn has improved our understanding of human health, disease, and ancestry. Genomics also has great potential in efforts to reduce global health inequalities, in hunger and health, for example. But to solve these big societal problems, all populations, not only those of European ancestry, need to be engaged in the use of genomics. As an example, humans originated in Africa, and African populations have the highest genetic diversity in the world. So genomic studies of African populations are critically important for understanding human evolutionary history and disease risks. But a lack of genomics infrastructure on the African continent is impeding these types of important studies. Today I'm talking with Dr. Charles Rotimi at the National Human Genome Research Institute, or NHGRI, in Bethesda, Maryland. Charles is the founding director of the Center for Research on Genomics and Global Health and chief of the Metabolic, Cardiovascular, and Inflammatory Disease Genomics Branch at NHGRI. An epidemiologist by training, Charles' research focuses on understanding the causes of complex disease and health disparities. He's particularly interested in understanding genetic and environmental risk factors in populations of African ancestry living in Africa, the United States, and the Caribbean. I always like to start from the fact that I grew up in Nigeria, um, where I did my undergraduate studies in biochemistry before coming to the United States for further studies. And I got a PhD in epidemiology uh, with some emphasis on genetics and biostatistics from the University of Alabama and in the former School of Public Health there. So I have always been interested in the issues surrounding health disparities and uh, why do some population experience, you know, different disease um, you know, distribution compared to others. And I've always wanted to understand that from a genetic and also epidemiological point of view. The African diaspora is the global community of people that descended from Africans, mainly as the result of the Atlantic slave trade between the 15th and 19th centuries. The largest populations of African descendants live in Brazil, the United States, and Haiti. Although these African descendants share a common genetic heritage with African populations, they live in different environments. Charles discussed his research of mapping environmental and genetic hypertension risk in the African diaspora. Human beings started in Africa mm. uh, and migrated to different parts of the world. And recent uh, migration out of Africa, what we refer to as the African diaspora, especially in the context of the slave trade, where Africans migrated to South America, to the United States, then to the Caribbean. So we use that design to try to understand both genetic and environmental factors. So, for example, we've studied hypertension in that context, where we did people in rural Africa like Nigeria and Cameroon, and urban centers also in Nigeria and Cameroon, and then people in the Caribbean and in the U.S., and migrants in the U.K., Manchester. 
where we were able to map and show that hypertension increases almost monotonously from rural Africa to urban Chicago. Really? For example, from a low of about 7% to about 35% in terms of prevalence of hypertension. And most of those differences we were able to explain by how heavy you are, the amount of salt you consume, and level of physical activity. But we also observed that not all of that we were able to explain from an environmental point of view. So I was also interested in designing genetic studies to see if we can share uh, insights into why we see differences in blood pressure distribution. I'm particularly interested in using that, the fact that people who share recent ancestry now live in very different environmental settings to understand gene-environment interactions. Genetic admixture is a term scientists use to describe when two previously isolated populations join and begin to produce offspring. The mixed ancestry descendants are admixed, meaning that they contain genetic material from both original populations. Genetic admixture can be studied using a method called admixture mapping. Admixture mapping is one of those um, very interesting techniques that we take advantage of demographic history that has played itself out. And it's basically based on the fact that two populations that were isolated for a very long time now come together to generate offsprings, you know, in, mm-hmm. in a sense. For example, African-Americans, as a result of the slave trade, came to the United States and they um, admixed with European ancestry individuals or even Native Americans. And because of that, you now have segment of the genome that has part from the European and part from Africa. And if the disease that you are interested in is actually different in the ancestral populations that came together, for example, if you look in Africans and the disease is maybe more or less common than in Europeans, then admixture mapping can lend itself to help track that down because the basic thinking behind admixture is that those regions in the genome that is tracking that these differences in disease will produce a signal mm-hmm. when yeah. you do the admixture mapping. And then you can follow up on that signal. So there is a sort of an assumption or a thinking that because there's a difference in disease distribution between the two ancestral populations, that that difference may be genetic. It doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be environmental. Right. But admixture lends itself for you to be able to interrogate that from a genetic point of view. When studying a disease or trait, admixture mapping can help to discriminate between genetic variation or variants and environmental factor differences. This can be extremely helpful when trying to understand the molecular causes of disease. These genetic variants could even be useful in finding new drug targets or biomarkers. Admixture mapping, in a sense, have been successful in mapping genetic variants that underlie something like prostate cancer, for example. And uh, we've also used it in our own study in terms of uric acid in relation to blood pressure and even the evolutionary history between hypertension, uric acid, and malaria. We've used admixture and association in combination of those two techniques to map that gene in a way that we, we share light on how those things are related. So if you pick up something using admixture, and that particular variant is explaining the disease differences between the two populations, then of course that lends itself to being, you know, it could be a drug target. It could, could be, be a biomarker, It could be a biomarker for, you know, for things. And we just need to study it more and see how that could be used in a clinic setting. So it's sort of the first leg 
to picking up those genetic signals and then now do more functional understanding of what that signal really does in the context of that disease. Charles uses genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, to characterize genetic variation in his admixture mapping research. Charles introduced the concept of GWAS and how it allows him to associate specific DNA variants with human traits or diseases. The way I'd like to describe GWAS is that it's sort of an agnostic process where we interrogate the human genome. And that is it's sort of looking at it like if you look at it as a street and you put markers in each street, like each house, you know, sort of helping you to have an address along the, uh, each chromosome in the human genome. And you use statistics to query where you find you know, association with a specific trait or disease that you're interested in, for example, if it's something like diabetes or hypertension, and you see areas where you have statistical significance, and then you now try to understand what is it about that region that is uh, meaningful in terms of the disease that you are interested in studying. So you start to do some kind of functional assays to follow on that signal that you get from uh, GWAS. Although our genomes contain millions of DNA variants, some of them are more common than others. GWAS is very efficient at finding these common DNA variants and associating those with traits. But GWAS is not able to find associations with rarer DNA variants. Next-generation sequencing, or NGS, can find these rarer variants as well as the more common ones. It's complementary in the sense that sometimes when you find a region, the region can be quite big, and you can actually use NGS to sequence that region, and that will give you more information within that region that you can interrogate more and see maybe you can actually narrow that region much more and find you know, things that will lend itself to more easier biological processes. But GWAS also is limited in the sense that it's actually going after common common variants, and if you do uh, next-generation sequencing, you capture both common and rare variants. And that way you have more opportunity to find things, especially things that are population-specific. In 2017, Charles and his colleagues published a review article in the journal Human Molecular Genetics titled The Genomic Landscape of African Populations in Health and Disease. The authors concluded that Less than 20% of GWAS studies include individuals with African ancestry versus non-African ancestry. Charles explained why African populations are so underrepresented in GWAS studies. Again, I think it's a combination of factors. I think one of the things that really drove that kind of disparity early in the process is really where the money was coming from in terms of who was funding genomic studies. Perhaps more importantly is that the cohort the studies that had the type of phenotype, the large enough sample size to be able to use this technique were mostly of European ancestry individuals. So you have these multiple factors, money, the fact that cohorts existed, and the scientists who had the skills to be able to do it. And then the biotechnology um, was also more efficient to interrogate the European genome because that's what it was based on at that point. Ah, right. You know, so the arrays were the arrays designed in, for that population. Exactly, were more efficient for European populations. So multiple factors came together to drive that. 
And given that scientists are not the most patient people, so people just keep using the existing cohort and the problem just got exacerbated. But it's being corrected slowly now by doing more studies in African ancestry populations and other human populations around the world. And hopefully with time, maybe in the next five, 10 years, uh, we will have sufficient representations from different parts of the world to sort of bring all of these things together. So what's the consequence of missing entire populations? Well, Charles described how understanding the African genome in more detail can help us to better map the European genome. When you look at the African genome that we talk about, it has more diversity, it's also more fragmented. And because of that, you're actually able to better localize signal that you see in European, where you can have something that is pretty big, you know, in terms of genomic locus. Whereas when you look in an African population, that very big region could be fragmented into five pieces. Therefore, you are closer to the causal variant by looking at what we call fine mapping, you know, using the African population. As we are using this next generation sequencing technology, we really need to make sure that we, we engage different African populations and populations from South America to make sure that uh, we are covering the breadth of human genetic variation in a systematic manner. And I, I think unlike the GWAS era, I think the next generation sequencing era, we recognize the limitation and what we've done because we were not very diverse. Understanding the complex genomic architecture of African genomes will help us understand human history, biology, and disease. So engaging African scientists in genomic studies is critically important. Charles helped to establish the H3Africa project, which aims to empower genomic scientists in Africa by building better genomics infrastructure on the continent. H3Africa, again, is a human heritage and health in Africa. It's a project that I have you know, established with the funding from the uh, NIH and the Wellcome Trust to basically see how we can bridge the genomic gap from the African point of view. And it was very important for us to design that study in such a way that it is led by Africans to understand conditions that affect African people, but create a global good that right. will be you know, important to other human populations in a way that the resources generated from history Africa will be available globally. But it will be to empower African scientists. So they are setting up state-of-the-art laboratories. And um, I think Illumina, as part of this effort, has also put a genotyping effort in South Africa. Again, part of this building, this infrastructure, to make sure that we are not always taking samples out of Africa into different parts of the world. So H3 Africa is creating state-of-the-art laboratory across the continent and engaging young men and women in biomedical research like never before. So it's more than just a genomics project. It's It's, a a transformational project. It's really transformational and it's motivating young men and women to see that they can actually do research on the continent H3Africa is an amazing and transformational initiative in genomics. But even in the context of a success story like H3Africa, many challenges remain. Charles discussed how both technical and political roadblocks need to be overcome to better enable genomics in Africa. For example, when I go to places like different African countries, trying to get the government and the private sector to engage in biomedical research in the way that they can own some of this project so that all of the resources funding these projects are not just coming from the outside. 
that is a major, major challenge. Even within the context of H3 Africa right now, we are struggling with how do we sustain this project? If, for example, NIH decides to put out in the next five years, how do we sustain this? How do we engage local government? How do we make sure that these laboratories that we have built, biorepositories, bioinformatics infrastructure can continue to grow? The other thing I wanted to say also in terms of H3 Africa, I mentioned earlier that we had this also limitation in terms of the early generation of GWAS chips or arrays not being very efficient in African populations. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we also try to overcome in H3 Africa. And we worked with Illumina to design a new chip that is H3 African GWAS chip that is now available and it will be much more efficient in interrogating um, in the African genome in the context of these various diseases. So again, that is very, very, very important and it's part of the success story of H3 Africa, again, in working with biotechnology companies like Illumina. Charles is tremendously excited by the future possibilities of genomics. He believes that enabling whole genome sequencing on a large scale will ultimately reduce the cost of healthcare, which will benefit all of us. We have an unprecedented opportunity in biomedical research to query our inheritance in a way that we've never been able to do in the context of just even understanding human history. Then in terms of where this is really going, I'm hoping that at some point we are going to carry our genome just like we carry our driver's license. And because of that, we may be able to integrate it within our own clinical care and be more efficient in how we give drugs to people and what drug is effective. And also maybe to use that to reduce the cost of healthcare, especially for developing countries right, where yeah. there's real challenge. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we can say for this population, these are the drugs that really works very well. So you don't need to be buying those or that drugs, you know, so focus on this because we've studied the genetic variation of this population and we see that these are the drugs that are more efficient and things like that. So I think that's probably where we, where we need to go or we can design new technology for newborn screening uh, in a way that instead of paying you know, $20 uh, in a place like Nigeria to do newborn screening, we can do it for pennies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that would be absolutely phenomenal. Uh, trend, that would yeah. be revolutionary, yes. So the increased engagement of African populations in genomic studies is providing insight into human history, health, and disease. Empowering genomic science in Africa will ensure that discoveries will shed light on conditions that affect African people and people of African ancestry. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Guillaume Paré, Associate Professor of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. We'll be discussing the genetic determinants of cardiovascular disease and the use of genetic markers to predict cardiovascular disease risk here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>